Well, it's the middle of winter yet. I know sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and kind of wish that spring would be around the corner. Amen. <laughs> the days are short and the skies are generally thick with these clouds and it's been blowing and raining re relentlessly. And uh, the good news is there's still more to come. <laughs> but there's always dreaming, right? Um, and I know there's some of you who are dreaming of your, of your garden already. And perhaps you've never even stopped dreaming of your garden. I know there's people like that. There are some people who are just crazy about planting things and watching them grow and then bud and then flower and then bear their fruit all in a vast array of variety. It is even more exciting when the whole process ends and there's stuff on your table. This process, <coughs> this process happens at my home through Liz's passion and desire to see her backyard growing full and well-colored and, and fruitfully. I have to admit, I really enjoy the carrots and the snap peas. They're just like great. She puts in an incredible amount of effort to watch a seed sprout and ultimately grow in the yard, producing all the wonders that God has endowed it with. It is rather mysterious, isn't it? A little seed, a few months in the ground, and then voila. What makes it do that? Well, we call it the power of nature. As for me, I don't have this bug. If it were just me, my yard would be gravel, no lawn, no trees of notability, no garden, just, garden, just gravel, dandelions. and encroaching salmonberry bramble. <laughs> it would be embarrassing. I live on a street that is kind of noted for its beauty, right? It's like people like to drive down Bjorka Street. <clears throat> I shudder to think what would happen should Liz not be able to put in the effort. It would be shameful. But even I can appreciate the compelling beauty of a growing, well-tendered, gardened lawn, uh, yard. It is clearly a lot of effort. The Christian life is so very much like a garden, isn't it? There is great effort needed in conjunction with the unseen yet very evident power of God to grow up into all that he has endowed us to be a likeness after Christ Jesus' his own glory and excellence. 
Last week, John led us through some character qualities that he called trust muscles. That the Apostle Peter says we are to make every effort to see bloom in our life. And to summarize verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1, because God has endowed our new creation nature with everything needed to resemble Christ in our earthly life, we are, in summary of verse 5 and 7, to make every effort to grow in our faith with the fruit and flower of virtue or moral excellence. And to that knowledge or understanding of God and to that self-control saying no to selfish and sinful desire and to that steadfastness also known as patience and endurance and to that godliness loving what he loves and hating what he hates and to that brotherly affection growing in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and finally to that love being committed to one another's highest good no matter their response in return you get the idea that it is a beautiful garden basket full of variety complementing colors and beauty but truly not everybody makes the effort even as some in your neighborhood don't get around to mowing their lawn or clearing the weeds and the, and the dandelions and the bramble as we continue along in 2 Peter chapter 1 into verses 8 through 11 today, <clears throat> Peter is pushing along further in order that we, we would be the ones who diligently make every effort and see the faithfulness and power of God at work in us. And so I've titled my message, To Grow or not to grow. And so let's read Second Peter chapter 1, 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's those trust muscles that we just went through, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, indeed, I pray that you would bless your word today. Pray that it would fall on good soil. That we would hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name. And so, my outline, to grow or not to grow. There is very little question, as our passage today paints two very different pictures, to grow or not to grow, and their ultimate outcomes. So what does it look like to grow? Not to grow, to know, and to go. To grow, not to grow, to know, and to go. It has been said, all living things grow. The moment they quit growing, they are dying. And in the same way, the Bible always describes one who has been born again by the living and enduring word of God, having been birthed a new creation in Christ as growing, developing, and producing. The word from 1 Thessalonians 4.12 is, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel even more. It says that every time you read it. I used to read that and go, how much faster can I go? Well, we can learn to excel even more, grow even more. This is very much the sense of verse 8 here. Given the DNA of godliness at our new birth in Christ, making every effort to cultivate these qualities, relying on the power of God through his promises, the Christian will live a life according to God's design. This is in itself a promise of God we can count on. These qualities, as they are developed, will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is expressed in the negative sense in this verse, using the word ineffective and unfruitful. But seeing as this is painting a picture of what it means to grow, I want to, I like what the contemporary English version how it puts it in the positive sense. It says, if you keep growing in this way, it will show that what you know about our Lord Jesus Christ has made your lives useful and meaningful. If you keep growing in this way, developing these qualities, it will show that what you know about our Lord Jesus Christ has made your lives useful and meaningful. We, have, we as Christians have a challenge. 
It's always a challenge to us to let what we know in our head change our heart. Everything the Bible teaches us about God, about ourselves, about others, is to change our heart. It's to affect the way we live and think. It's to help us grow. And this is particularly true when we are talking about the knowledge of God. It's so very easy to let the knowledge of God just hang out up here, kind of like a big cloud. A dry cloud, one that never rains down into the heart, watering the heart. What this verse expresses in the positive sense is that if what you know about God does not translate into effectiveness or usefulness, into fruitfulness or into the things meaningful, then your knowledge is only head deep and is quite useless and meaningless. 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, if I have all knowledge but have not love, I'm nothing, just nothing. If it comes from the heart, that is knowing Jesus relationally in an increasing, increasingly fuller and deeper sense, then it issues in fruitfulness. Just as Jesus said in John 14, verse, or John 15, verse 4 and 5. He says, abide in me. Know me relationally. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The words effective and fruitful or useful and meaningful are great words. They mean our lives don't have to be a waste of good ground. I originally uh, had there written, they'd, they, were, they mean our lives don't have to be a waste of space. <laughs> I thought I'd soften it, but now there I've firmed it up again. <laughs> we can actually influence people unto being drawn to Christ's glory and his excellence into a relationship with him so that they too can live useful and meaningful lives. This is done both by example and focused effort. Recall the first four of the list of qualities, virtue, knowledge, self-control and steadfastness. 
These are largely personal, focused Godward, as John taught us last week. But other people notice these things through our example. It's a life marked by holiness. We stand out as a light in a dark world. The last four of the qualities, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are efforts, also known as hard work, focused in our community, first of all in the church, and then to the world. But their fruit benefits the lives of other people. both inside and outside of the church. To see the power of God at work in us to change another's eternal future is truly some of the most meaningful and rewarding stuff that we can do. So make every effort to grow in these qualities. To grow or not to grow. Second Peter, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. <coughs> Sadly, there are people who call themselves Christians that lack these qualities. Already you can sense the ambiguity or uncertainty about these people that don't exhibit these qualities Peter is talking about. Certainly, it's hard to tell if they are truly Christians or not by looking from the outside in because there's nothing noticeable that would say that they are. I have talked to many who claim Believing in Jesus, who are nice people, all right, but they live immorally, care little for God's word, live according to their own desires, rail on those whom they don't like, and certainly never set foot in a church. Not with those hypocrites. These either have a false assurance of their salvation or live in an uncertainty themselves of their true status with God. Peter describes them as having, as being so nearsighted that they're blind. They can see but can only focus on what is two inches in front of their nose. They live as unbelievers, the spiritually blind, living only in the moment with no eternal perspective, nothing to guide their way other than the things that they bump into. And this, because they have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their former sins and been given a meaningful purpose. 
when we forget that through the gospel we have been forgiven of our sin, we also forget that sin is something to be shunned. And we become easy prey for the enemy who uses it to bring us to uselessness and meaninglessness in our life. Our lives become barren, not useful for the purpose for which God called us to himself. To reflect his glory and excellence. What a privilege to reflect God's glory and evidence in our life to the effect of moving other people toward eternity with Christ. How is it possible to forget that you have been forgiven of your sins that demand an eternal penalty? Well, it starts small, doesn't it? Giving into sinful desire and failing to repent of it. Neglecting the preaching, teaching, and reading of God's word. Neglecting fellowship. Not being involved in the life of the church. Deciding church going is unimportant. Thinking that watching TV services from the lazy boy will suffice. And so all this results in a failure to know. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The trouble with being blind is that you can't tell where you're going. You may know where you want to go, but being blind you don't know that you're actually going to get there. And after a while, you even quit wanting to. This is Peter's point regarding one's assurance of their salvation. If you've forgotten the work of the gospel in your life and have be become desensitized to sin, you will certainly fall right back into it and it will do its blinding work. And you will lose the certainty of where you're going. You see, it's not your profession of faith that gives you your assurance of your salvation. It is our progression in the faith that gives you assurance. Is your faith a living and saving faith? And are you growing? Living things grow. Some of the most sobering verses in the Bible come from Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven 
on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Could this be you? On what do you base your confidence? Is it I did this, I did that, I, I, I? Or is it nothing but Jesus died for me? Jesus died for sinners. I am a great sinner. Therefore, Jesus died for me. The unredeemed can answer the, the first way, and they will. But they can't answer the second way. It's inconceivable to them that Christ died for me much less being able to put it into words. A living, saving, growing faith is planted in the soil of Jesus died for me. Just like that picture. And it's confirmed as such by its growth. A living, saving, growing faith is planted in the soil of Jesus died for me. And it is confirmed as such by its growth. And so Peter writes, be all the more diligent. Make every effort to confirm your salvation by practicing these qualities. Work out your trust muscles. Watch them grow. Become strong. Peter uses the word, the words calling and election to refer to salvation. The doctrine of election is a wonderful doctrine, but often misunderstood and misapplied. It teaches that our salvation rests not in our choosing God, but him choosing us. Amen. But God's electing is always coupled with his calling. Calling us through the regenerating work of the spirit, through the gospel, Received by faith. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and see if, if this doesn't bear out. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. 
because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. That is, the Spirit at work setting you apart unto belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine also teaches that none of God's elect will be lost. One's salvation rests in God's power to save and to keep. John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. By the way, I and the Father are one. Election is salvation from God's perspective. 2 Timothy 2:19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so while it teaches that God knows, it also teaches that the only way man knows, that's you and me, is let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see, the elect of God are revealed to us, to the world, even to themselves through the preaching of the gospel followed by a profession of faith and a progression in the faith. There is no comfort or assurance in the doctrine of election for the one who makes a profession and goes on his merry way, living in disobedience and enjoying the pleasures of sin. But to the one who does grow, his confidence then is to know. And that, in order that he will get to go. Verse 14, or verse 11, excuse me. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For in this way, for the one who makes the effort to grow, for the one who makes the effort to grow, he's not blind, is he? He knows where he wants to go and he knows how to get there in this way. Through a saving faith in Christ, a faith that presses on. 
His destination fuels his diligence even further for he knows what waits ahead. Kind of like a horse who can smell the barn. He will be given a rich welcome, a grand entrance, a lavish reception. It's the kind of welcome we give to Olympic champions when they come home. There's a big party. There's celebration. This is what waits those who make the effort to grow. And it's Christ himself who will welcome and say, well done, good servant. Enter into the joy of your master for all eternity. My friend, heaven is not something that we are ho-hum about and then go on our way, go on, go on to poke about our Christian meanderings and worldly interests. Heaven is a finish line that we're pressing on for. We press on for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, says Paul, unto the joys of his eternal kingdom. This is what Paul's attitude was as he expressed it in Philippians 3, 14. Being diligent, making every effort is the way to grow and to a rich, eternal welcome. Just so you know, it's costly to make every effort. Being diligent to confirm. And many just don't want to pay the price. It means spending time in the Bible, time in prayer, and time in fellowship with other believers who are growing. This often means a significant change of schedule or lifestyle. It's priority one. Making church a priority when you'd rather be hunting, shopping, or sleeping. It means making time and being disciplined to be consistent in Bible reading and prayer. And it means obedience to what you read and learn. You have to come to the Bible saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. If you seek for this heavenly wisdom, as a miner seeks for gold and silver or a fisherman for fish, you will learn and grow. It's his promise. Amen. It's a lifetime commitment until the Lord returns or calls you home. As a short testimony, these things have changed my life from guilt, shame, and defeat to joy, hope, assurance, perseverance, 
and to eternal reward. I recall hanging out in my truck at Thompson Harbor parking lot. And my boat was right down there, which I lived on. And hearing Charles Stanley say, the way I read the Bible is I read two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament every day. And then I pray about what I read. And these are prayers that aren't fancy. They're not to impress anyone else. No one else even hears them, but you know the Lord Jesus hears them. And when I started to do that, my life changed. And it wasn't very long, and I wanted to be with Christian people, even the ones that were way older than me. There was no other young ones, but I didn't care. These are my people. I have to say to the youth, I say it because I'm not a youth anymore. My brain has solidified. It's getting crusty. It's flaking off. But yours is not. Know the word of God. Learn the word of God. Conquer the word of God. Pile in the word of God in your life now, in your mind and heart, because it never leaves you once it's in there. When I preach, when I teach, you know what I'm drawing on so often? What I learned when I was 35 or 25, piling in the word of God, those things come back. Nowadays, I, I try and learn, and it, you know, it's just gone. The next day, it's gone. And it's just day by day now. But the treasure of God's word in my heart and my life from when I was young and could learn, invaluable. Invest in the word of God. For you guys who like um, trilogies and you get all excited about trilogies and, whoo, you know, um, what's his name? Um, uh, yeah, Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and, you know, all those things. And, you know, People devour those and they get them, you know, they got all the ins and outs and they get the whole story. My friend, the Bible is so much more than those books. It's real stuff. It tells you the beginning to the end and it includes you in the process. You can enter into the story. Trusting God, walking with him, listening to his voice. 
pouring your own heart out to him. I'd love to talk with you if you have questions about how to start. I don't know what I'd say other than read two in the old and one in the new every day and pray and don't be discouraged and never quit. This is the rest of your life. I close with a prayer of Paul's from Colossians 9 through 14. I think it is a prayer that sums up all the messages. There's been three that we've had to this point in 2 Peter. There, all three of those messages are embedded in this, in this passage. It's a prayer. We have not ceased to pray for you, says Paul, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we pray that we might grow in these ways Amen.